I'm Emily Kyle, and this is Local. This is a conversation with Hobart-based filmmaker and photographer, Michael Hilly. This episode was recorded in January during Michael's residency at QBank Gallery. So, okay, we start at the beginning. Where where were you born? Were you born in Australia? I was born in Australia. I was born in East Melbourne. Well, the hospital was in East Melbourne, but my uh, family home was in uh, St Albans. In the, I guess it's inner west. It is inner west of Melbourne. Yeah. And what was your what was your family like? What was your childhood like? Um, so I'm a first generation Australian. My parents are both of Maltese heritage. Mum was born in Malta. Dad was born in England, but only just that his family had just left uh, Malta and they immigrated to Australia uh, as early teens, um, like a lot of the Mediterranean did. Uh, and the inner west of Melbourne uh, in that period when I was growing up and prior to that uh, was full of immigrants from Greece, Malta, Italy, Turkey. Uh, And when I went to primary school, it just, uh, there started to be an influx in the 90s of um, Asian immigration as well. So um, Chinese, a lot of Vietnamese, uh, Filipino. So primary school, to my memory, I I actually can't remember any Australian kids, (laughs) um, which I thought was very normal. However, mum and dad although uh, our family was big and uh, a lot of my aunts and uncle were very Maltese in a way. Uh, Mum and dad were kind of pretty secular to a degree and had it like dad loved football and uh, mum spoke Maltese but only to relatives. We, we didn't really kind of perform out this kind of Maltese thing. Uh, and then in high school we moved further out and it was kind of a flip. It was very Australian, um, still in the, the kind of northwest but it, I went to high school and there was kind of almost everyone almost was from Australian heritage and that that kind of blew my mind. I didn't really understand what was going on. So Yeah, how do yeah. you navigate that? Well, it was just kind of becoming, I think you get to that point where you sort of start to put the pieces together that everyone has a different background. Hmm. Uh, and it was at that point that I realised we also shifted out of a world where everyone kind of had a similar story that their parents had come over as early teenagers and that their grandparents had accents and that you ate weird food and all that sort of stuff seemed very normal. And then I went to high school and everyone seemed really different. So I never really felt like a minority. I don't think we ever really were a minority, but uh, in primary school, but then that kind of had a highlighter put over it in high school where it was like for the first time you were kind of told that you had 
Maltese heritage or, you know, like we're kind of othered in a way, which was no, it wasn't cruel or anything like that. I mean, it was coming into a period as well, which I think we're in now where you're kind of celebrated for that. And particularly if you've got good food behind you. Mm, yeah, that does help. Yeah. Also, you know, having those formative years of, of safety even, um, I mean, if it, if it was reversed, if you were in a situation growing up with a lot of um, Australian folk, uh, and then moving into a situation where you're uh, around people of a similar heritage or a similar background, that might feel different than having your formative years in this safe, sort of almost like a little cocoon of you're okay, you're same, same, you can... Well, it's sort of interesting for that because the inner west where we grew up with, kind of unbeknownst to me, had a reputation for being quite a rough area wow and again I wasn't made aware of that until after the fact until after we moved I mean it just felt normal and we had a really safe family home and we used to walk to school and everything like that but I can distinctly remember sort of the first friend I made in year eight or something we had a group project and I asked him to come and kind of finish it off at my place and he came back the next day and his mom was like he was like, oh, I, my mum said that, you know, I can't come to St. Albans. And I was like, why at the distance? And he's like, no, because it's a terrible place. You know, and I was like, that was the first oh. time I'd kind of, the first time I remember being conscious hearing of it sort of thing. And since I know that there's this sort of like reputation of kind of uh, gang warfare and stuff like oh. that. I mean, it's all that sort of stuff. We just came out of living in America and it's the same thing there. It's like, a, it's not like you're in the middle of the crossfire sort of thing. It's like. Yeah. It would have to be an accident, accident for you to stumble into that trouble. But it didn't feel unsafe growing up. No, and I think that's, um, that's a really interesting thought in that um, so when I was younger, I spent a few years with my uh, mum, I, I mean sort of like four, three, four, five, um, in northern Western Australia in this, it's a, it's a very sort of industrial place called Port Headlands. And um, my mum was a single mum at the time and she we were trying to get into public housing. Um, and at that time there wasn't any kind of distinction um, between groups living in the same space. There wasn't any attention paid to, you know, is this group predominantly Tongan or um, some, you know. And uh, so we were the only white, white family uh, in a predominantly Indigenous neighbourhood um, or really, yeah, an Indigenous neighbourhood. And I remember going to school, there were a lot of um, a lot of Indigenous kids and um, a lot of Muslim kids and it was, looking back, knowing what I know now, it was a pretty dangerous situ situation to be in. That's probably not a space that we should have been in. Right. Um, but I didn't feel any of it. I didn't yeah. feel any of it as a child. You know, I just I thought about how red the earth was. I was very happy at school. It wasn't yeah. anything. If only we could stay in that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah without any kind of yeah. prejudice or fear. Or... Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're in Melbourne. Would you say you're in West Melbourne now around that time? Yeah. So and where, do you, where do you go from there? At uh, a high school, I was... Um, pretty interested in outdoors. I'd been doing like stints of work experience with Parks Victoria and um, thought that was kind of a good path. So I studied applied science um, 
through the guidance of a family friend who was um, had this incredible job as a parks ranger out um, in the Grampians and the Twelve Apostles and all these great places. And that was pretty formative spending time with him. Um, so I studied uh, applied science with the hope of kind of moving into that world uh, towards the end of it. I found that tree biology in particular interested me and I think the catalyst for the next decision was from an article in an Australian Geographic magazine which had um, tree climbers collecting seed of mountain ashes like you know these 90 meter trees that could only be regenerated by fire to lop this seed out to get it like scarify it through big dryers and I was like well that's you know that's fascinating. As like a 20-year-old or whatever, I was like, what an amazing job climbing trees all day. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this, visually it looks amazing. So I tried to understand what that job was and started working for an cultural company. And um, Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds fun. It's oh, incredibly, incredibly hard work though. Yeah, it's crazy. So I followed that path. I moved to... New Zealand and oh really and specifically studied um arboriculture at this great amazing yeah it was great it was it's fantastic and the the school was fantastic the classroom itself was in the middle of a botanic gardens and you did uh you know a, a lot of climbing and I think a lot of people get into that industry um I know sound prejudice here uh there's a lot of like big muscly dudes in that uh, area that like driving trucks playing with chainsaws um that sort of thing so when i went to the school i was particularly small for what was there and there was a, there was a couple of climbing teachers and one of them was kind of this built dude and the other guy was uh, the other person was a German woman who was a world-class climber and she was had a similar body frame to me. So I ended up getting this kind of one-on-one tutorial of a very particular way of climbing, which is a lot more delicate and got to do with kind of tree preservation and fine pruning and getting out as far as you can and doing a lot of hand-sawing work, which is kind of more what I was interested in. Yeah, um, so it's great training. I think it's um, – I, I, I was with a man for a number of years who uh, was an arborist. <laughs> Um, and he, yes, yeah, so, you know, that you're absolutely right. There are a lot of very big, burly men, but at the same time, they're a little bit encumbered. They're, they're, they don't have a lot of, um, range of movement. It's very, you know, very hacking and very, oh, I'm taking a tree down. Right. Um, and it was quite, it was quite amazing to meet some of the people that Matt worked with and that. A smaller body type is more suited to preservation, like you were saying. That, yeah. that that is, and that was definitely a direction that he was going in as well. Is how can we take care of the trees instead of just, especially working for um, an electricity company, a oh, lot sure. of it was felling. Sure. Which it was heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, eventually that's um, sort of what seeded feeling like I needed to shift out of that world because it's I think this occurs in a lot of industries but you often have kind of both kind of polar opposite ideas Mm. within the same field Mm. you've got people who love knocking down trees and you've got people who want to preserve trees and then the profession 
as it's commodified, has both jobs in it. So you could turn up one day and have the best day of your life at work and the next day be seriously protesting what you've been asked to do. Mm. And I think there's, you know, like every industry, there's um, companies that kind of uh, usher in good moral choices and support their stuff and and there's other people who are just trying to stay afloat or opposite you know, uh, doing some pretty evil work. And I was kind of spent a lot of my time subcontracting for companies that were in the mix, but trying to choose my jobs. But ultimately I got pretty frustrated at the type of work that was out there. Mm, Yeah. This might be a little bit off topic, but with your history and your experience, I wondered how much you, I mean, I don't know very much myself, but um, we were talking the other day about the moonscape the, mm. as a result of all of the mining. But I wondered if you knew that um, when when the rainforest started to regenerate, uh, there were people in town that were going out to the mountains and poisoning the wow. regeneration. Wow, that's insane. To, to, yeah, they wanted... They wanted to preserve the moonscape? Preserve or? the moonscape. That's incredible. I know. When I first heard it, it just... I couldn't wrap my head around it. I thought, why would you not want the trees to come back? That's insane. Uh, yeah. Um, I. Not that I definitely... It's, some, it's a mindset that I don't understand, but I'm sure that someone does right yeah no i can kind of it it's not that it doesn't surprise me but i can i can see the drive for that it's bizarre (laughs) and it's pretty dark isn't it It, yeah it's um and i don't know if it was wanting to not wanting the landscape to change in an effort to keep wanting the mind to stay open or reopen wanting wanting that source of income wanting that lifestyle back and by keeping the trees away maybe that was uh, keeping to something familiar or mm. I'm, I'm not sure but bizarre yeah yeah bizarre. so you uh moved away from arborism i went traveling i'd kind of been um wanting to i traveled off and on internationally and um a friend of mine was doing a cycling trip in um, the Pacific Northwest of the US um, and asked me to come and I thought it was an insane idea. He was cycle touring and I was like, that's, that sounds stupid. Um, but I kind of needed to get out of Melbourne for a second. So he, he kind of pressured me uh, and I bought a bike and went over with him and he was cycling Vancouver to San Francisco. So we did that and then I stayed on and kept cycling down to Mexico by myself and kind of just did that disappear for a year sort of thing and end up in South America and Central America and ultimately Malta to meet my grandparents who were visiting. I know my grandparents in Australia and they were uh, visiting Malta. And on that trip, um, I kind of desire to put some action into shift out of tree work happened. And um, I'd always been interested in, because ultimately with, with tree work, it wasn't just the depressing nature of how work was going i was kind of bored physically it's extremely demanding Mm. um there's an element of like how long can i do this before i injure myself or my body gives out which is problematic in itself but ultimately i felt like i was mentally bored um which i think is just like 
you know, a maturing thing where you realize what you want to spend your time on. So I think the two things that kind of interested me was um, art and history. And I think I was tossing up kind of the most traditional formats of those sort of things to go back and study. Um, and then as I was traveling, I got really obsessed with this idea of a sort of emotional response to a place. So if I went into a cafe in New York and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before and you kind of become overwhelmed, you're like, this is fantastic. Or being in a desert in Mexico and sort of having a similar response. I was interested in how those kind of emotional surges were connected, considering one was man-made and one was natural, but mm. they both fired up something. And then I think the next piece of the puzzle that felt similar to that was watching a film and I thought well this is really interesting because it's complete artifice it's completely made up but it's triggering similar emotions to first-hand experience um, and I'd never really looked into how film or theater was put together um, and a good friend of mine that was a filmmaker kind of was like politely like that's someone's role it's called a production designer they you know <laughs> they design these things and make the worlds for the film um so you know just good timing I was like that's what it, that's the one that that sounds like it gets you know I could see how you could get a script and you could go like okay 18th century France I know nothing about that let's research and then you learn a bit about the time you obviously had to push it through um a design or a creative filter and you got to make choices as well. And it's like, great, well, I don't know if I've got quite the patience or the um, brain to sit in a studio and paint something. Um, and I might get a little too bored with straight history. So that kind of sat in the middle. Um, and I looked at courses in Australia uh, and afters was the film uh, course, which was in Sydney. And then uh, the theatre one was... NIDA and from my understanding that was a bit better resource from design at least anyway and I thought well I could I don't know anything about theatre but I could see if I could get into that course um, and then after that you know who knows I'm, I'm not too interested in what happens after it but I mean I know that both of all those courses are like a little bit uh, competitive so it was a bit of a roll of the dice. And what um what do you have to what did you have to do? You have to, to do apply? it's like a portfolio situation. So anyone can apply, which is great. Um, it's pretty open in that sense. And I at that stage, and I'm not sure if it's still similar. They did this really lovely thing, which was everyone got a one on one interview, no matter who you were. Which if it weren't for that, I don't think I I would have got an audience. But they're great. They travel to every. Um, major city so like I didn't you know I could do it in Melbourne and they'd come down uh the bit that was difficult in it is it was kind of portfolio based so you got a set of they gave you a set of like six plays and you could choose one to focus on and then you basically had to do that as a hypothetical project so you uh so what was yours mine was a play called six degrees of separation and considering I'd just done some travel and was sort of like pretty taken by New York, that seemed like a good choice for me. The difficult thing in it was um, there's a lot of technical components to designing a play and that's what the portfolio had to be made up of. Um, so generally people applying have some amount of experience in that, even at an amateur level or they've most people have gone through some sort of arts or design 
precursor, whether it's like a TAFE course or an arts degree, um, or at least have a very good knowledge of theatre. I hadn't even seen a play, so I was like, this is a bit <laughs> stupid. Um, so I, I had a studio space and was doing tree work through the day and then would go in at night and try and just figure it out. Um, and so you've got to make a scale model of what the set would be, some sort of drawings attached to that, and then some costume renderings. Uh, and, you know, I met with the guy who ran the course uh, and it's like you have zero idea what you're doing, which is kind of odd. But I think the one thing that I did right was um, this was kind of intuitive, but I kind of made a Bible of research, which was sort of like the complete play broken down into technically what had to happen. But, you know, it's set in a certain social circle um in new york and so there was like a whole chapter on like what it meant to live parkside in new york and what you know the type of people that inhabit those spaces mm. the architecture you know where the brownstones have come from and like what pieces go into that both you know what size of windows and stuff like that and then sort of thematically doing stuff and i think that's kind of what he responded to that the fact that very few males apply for the course yeah. which you find out a bit later that it's a much easier to get in as a male um and also a lot of there's a lot of kids coming into it that are just out of uh I, there's a couple that come in just out of high school that are really high achievers and a few that have done TAFE or um arts courses but they're kind of going back to back very few people I think apply for it as kind of a career shift so I think I just had these dotted things that made it attractive enough to accept me you know I think it is interesting what I find interesting is uh when we were talking the other day um and and actually the more that we talk the more that I feel like I'm understanding um your thought processes because it just it feels like um you you have the breadcrumb analogy isn't the right thing but it's these little these little pieces it's these little pieces and you're gathering this information constantly gathering and gathering um, and until the picture forms. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think similar to the breadcrumb analogy, um, I heard David Lynch interviewed and he uses a similar metaphor based around fishing that, you know, it's like you go out in a boat and you put a worm in and you wait. And the worm's kind of like just a curiosity. You think something might be in the lake and it attracts a fish at some point and the fish is quite small. You pull it up, you take a look at it. Instead of taking it off the hook, you put it back in the water. You wait, eventually attracts a bigger fish until, you know, way down the track, you've got this enormous bizarre looking fish. And it's like, that's that sounded when I heard it similar to yeah. how I feel about stuff. Makes I, I, sense. Yeah, it's sort of like a curiosity in a place or a thing and just, um, it's always laborious for me. It's always like a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of looking in books, listening to music. And it can be something quite um, abstract to what the, the piece is like in theatre design. So I think I'd listen to an enormous amount of music or look for poetry or something that, you know, just a different way of describing what you're reading off the page. That was something that was such a um, just a really happy surprise when we were uh, talking at QBank 
is when you started talking about when we were talking about your um what drives you conceptually and you began talking about literature and magic realism um that was that was such a that was such a thrill for me because I I know personally I'm very um interested in literature even though it has nothing to do largely nothing to do with my practice um but yeah making all of these connections these crossover connections I think is fascinating because you're constantly I feel like now in this world that we live in constantly inundated with information that we can sort of we, we take in chew up spit out that's not for this it's you know it's just in and out in and out all the time but holding things and letting them have influence on other things is it feels rarer now i think for me partially it's just the way my brain works actually i was speaking to a relative of mine that i haven't seen for a very long time who's quite a bit older than me and he said um he's like ah you're like me you've got a really sticky brain (laughs) and i knew what he meant straight away because there's the you know there's these just odd things that stick to it or they're not even odd it's just like i've got a pretty good memory for things that affect me, whether it's literature or a photo or the way someone looks or what they said to me. So like, that's quite a good base for like gathering knowledge or it's like a natural way to lean into working because everything's there. I think the other big part of it is because my work's never been individual. um, It's always relied on communicating an idea to somebody else, whether Mm. it's theater or some kind of collaboration process. Yeah, you always, well, in theatre, like as a designer, you're directly responsible. You know, you're trying to build something that makes sense to the director and then you've got to turn that into technical information that you can feed to a workshop to build the set Um, and then that's meant to make some sort of metaphor or sense to an audience that makes a grander visual statement to what the words are being said. And then in film as a director, like you're constantly trying to get people to see things the way you are so they can help you to make it. So I think the use of literature or other art forms um, to explain what you're doing or draw a parallel comes from this really basic notion of me always going, you know, it's kind of like (laughs) this chapter in this book or, you know, when someone says to you that, I feel like, I'm constantly trying to draw this parallel and it's a bit like fucking fossicking, you know, you're trying mm. to find the thing that the person gets. You're trying to get to the part where they go, oh, I think I, I get it now. And there's usually like a blankness in someone's face until you mm. get the right metaphor. So it's always been helpful for me to be very eclectic and broad in what I'm consuming and what's getting stuck so that I can help kind of reverse engineer and explain my ideas to collaborators in the hope that they're going to be able to get as close to what I'm seeing as possible. There's a lot of communication involved with it, which is, you know, a lot of times people describe film making as after you've come up with the idea, from that moment on, you're pretty much just defending it as it slowly dies until you, <laughs> until you can kind of like put it out there. Yeah. Um, which I don't think I 100% get on board with, but I can definitely understand. It's such, it's so exhilarating when you first come, you're like, okay, this is how it all goes together. 
and then you want to tell everybody and then it's just like a dead end and then you kind of slowly get them on board but you see bits dropping off left right and it's like shit which bits are important how do we keep this kind of on the right path Yeah. yeah you were talking about when you started to get into film or at least uh experimenting with um shooting uh music videos and that that was something that you uh, I guess stumbled into or um that you weren't prepared to go back to school to do that uh that you just wanted to give it a go and see how it went and it it reminds me a little bit of the getting into theatre design sure you know there's something that I, I feel like a lot of creatives I've met it's almost I don't know if it's um I don't I don't know what it, I don't know if it's an ego thing or if it's an excitement thing or I, I I'm not sure exactly what it is but it feels like most creatives think that they can basically do anything <laughs> um you know they can just they oh you know I haven't done this before but I'm I'm pretty sure I could give it a go and it would be fine yeah yeah I think that's that's fairly true I can I can think of a few examples of coming home and having a certain look on my face and Donna being like what did you accept to do <laughs> one of them has nothing actually you know some of this was the pressure of being in New York and just trying to make a buck and like kind of telling anybody that you did anything like we did so many dumb things and <laughs> like painting the interior of a restaurant I don't know how we got ourselves into this position but we were, we were like yeah yeah you know and then people knock on the door and they're like are you guys painters can we get a card it's like yeah yeah you know of course <laughs> and then it's like you know you're a house mover one day but one thing I can you know specifically remember doing is it was around Thanksgiving and I worked in a restaurant and one of the customers said you know do you do catering on the side and I was like yeah of course <laughs> of course and they're like you know do you do you carve turkeys because it's coming up to Thanksgiving and I was like done it for years you know <laughs> sort of thing and then like in, in my head I'm like how much how hard can it be to carve? like why is there a specific job for that you know not being very um sort of sympathetic to the whole tradition of turkeys and um i think so is this you know is this extremely wealthy lady who had this uh, um kind of party for her wealthy guests and i got home that night and i'm like furiously looking on the internet and donna's like what did you get yourself into it's like i told a woman i can carve a turkey i need to learn how to do it <laughs> so i was like you know watching this new york times how to carve a turkey thing like on repeat for like four hours and then like oh went and did this they ended up sipping coffee and watching the Macy Day Parade with this like very wealthy parkside woman who didn't oh, want to be with her guests who was happy to kind of sit in the kitchen with me and watch the Snoopy blow-ups go by um but yeah and then we carved it and it was like a performance you know because I yeah I didn't realize it was such a coveted job but did that, you do it well though I, I got asked back two did years you? in a row yeah oh. I ended up forming quite a relationship with her um but I think that – I don't know so much that I, it's that I think I can do a better – I mean, definitely with filmmaking it was. we did, I described that when I was talking to you last time that there was a huge frustration art directing other people's um, work, putting in everything you have, you know, your heart and soul and so many hours that, you know, money's never part of it at that point. You're just mm. doing – you just want it to look good. Um, and then being furious when – 
you got the cup back and it didn't look like how you imagined yeah. it to look. And there's just so much that's out of your control. And strangely enough, a lot of it wasn't even just the basic shots or how the play thing had been put together. It had more to do with, you know, some coloring that they'd put on or, um, Sometimes it was the edit or that sort of thing. So a lot of that was a frustration. And this is a, like there's a really weird ground with designing theatre and film where you're not the director. And unless it's some very basic social realism thing where it's two people talking, you know, they're both highly visual mediums. Mm. So you're contributing an enormous amount. Mm. And that can get pretty edgy with the wrong collaborators because they might not have much of an idea to start. You shape the whole thing. It becomes the backbone of the piece and then it gets taken away from you and kind of messed with. Yeah, that must be really difficult. So directing for me came out of not wanting that to happen anymore and actually thinking that that was quite a dumb process that it's like I think you have to dislike yourself an amount to put yourself in that position where you can let somebody take an idea that you've yeah. put a lot into and mess with it and go back time and time again. It kind of felt like... Yeah, sadistic. It, it felt pretty sadistic. And I think Donna at some point gave me an ultimatum that was like, stop complaining about it <laughs> and do it yourself if you think you can do She's it better. She's very clever. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and then that's basically how the leap into that. So that was very purposeful to at least progress towards that. The question was very similar to the theatre school one, which is how do you do this? Like how, mm. how what's the entry point into this? Um, and I had a camera, I knew how to take photos basically, and I knew that I wanted to incorporate set design ideas in standard photography leading towards taking motion. So I just started cold calling like a complete pest to any yes. musician I could find. Yes. I didn't know much about social media at that point, even though it had been around for a plenty long time. But, you know, sliding into the DMs of as many <laughs> touring artists as I could, which in New York is great because there's one every minute. Um, and there was a band that had just started in LA that had one of my favourite guitarists of all time in it and they were playing in New York and... I hit up the front man of that and he is a bizarre um, person <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and he wrote back and it was like a great rush. And he said, you know, I said, can oh, I, take, can, can I take, cool. take some photos of you guys? Really wanting to take photos of guitarists, not of the front man as well, which, you know, of course I wasn't going to mention. And he was like, great, you know, send me through your work. Uh, uh, and I was like, well, I haven't got any. So I sent him my theater portfolio which is not photos I've taken. They're sets that I'd yeah. either designed or been involved in oh, designing. Oh, what did he think? He was like, these are great, fantastic. <laughs> I don't know if he, like, knowing him later on, he probably, like, scrolled through it and assumed that I'd taken the photos. Also, I learnt, later learned that he was a music theatre kid. So I think there was some, some kind of connective tissue with what he saw. Anyway, he was like, great, um... Call, this is my manager's number. He's going to get in contact, turn up, you know, at the Mercury Lounge and shoot the gig. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, what have I done? You know, like, I don't know what. I, I definitely don't know how to do, like, gig photography. Um, anyway, turned up, did it. And he was like, great, how did it go? And I was like, you know, they're fine, but they're like gig photos. What I really need is, like, 
a night with you tomorrow and we'll just run around Chinatown, take some photos um, and bring the guitarist. <laughs> and he was like, sure, sure, sure. So we turned up, did like an hour to a shooting. Guitarist didn't come. No. Um, anyway, flicked him back to him the next day. And he said, what are you doing? Come, come, come and meet me in town. And I was like, I'm working. I'm, I work at a restaurant. He's like, what are you talking about? You work at a restaurant. Are you a photographer or not? And I was like, you know how it is sort of thing. And he was like, okay. Uh, so I met him after a, another gig they played that night in town. Um, I remember forget it because he said the strangest thing to me. He said, do you travel? And I was like, in general? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm an Australian living in America. And he goes, what are you doing the next couple of months? And I was like, you know, working, doing stuff. Uh, and he's like, oh, we're, we're opening for John Mayer on like a, a stadium tour around America. Do you, want, do you want to come and do the video and photos for it? And I was like, sure. And I remember, like, again, like, Donna was actually there that time. She was like, what have you gotten yourself into? And I was like, I don't know. She's like, you don't know how to take video. And I was like, I'm going to have to learn. And that was that was kind of the, like, the, the training. So I caught a plane out to, they were in Georgia or something at the time. And I'd had, like, a crash course on, like, editing in Premiere and had hired out a camera because I didn't even know but like, I didn't know how to use like DSLR motion stuff and didn't understand frame rates and like understood that there would have to be a lot of slow motion and stuff like that. So anyway, crash course of learning that. And then that was crazy. That was like, there was so much recording and editing in a van and the band had like classic kind of almost like 80s cocaine driven <laughs> egos they were all fighting with each other um, but i finally got to take not only take photos of the uh, guitarist but oh, he got there in the end he's australian and after the first gig that we that he played we formed this enormous bond and we ended up rooming together and became extremely close friends um and oh, has kind of been my really so ma good. main collaborator throughout the throughout making um, music videos and probably where most of the community of artists is attached to um, sort of kept coming back to me and that that's kind of the spread out of who I've ended up working with in music video. You yeah. know, I, I think it's it's quite amazing. Your, your story in particular is, is amazing. But the amount of times that... I've heard that story or um, have experienced that for myself where you just find yourself in a situation and you're, you just, it's, it feels like the work of a thousand guesses. You know, you're just oh, sure. bumping around and then you meet these people and then all of a sudden you're, you're meeting these other people and there are all of these connections and, and then you've got this community of people, like-minded people that you get to work with and you can't, you, you I, I, I don't know, sometimes I sort of I look at the people that I've met and I think, I, I can't believe that happened. Yeah, it's bizarre and then that becomes normalised yeah. and you, you like every now and then you think back to, you know, oh, what was it like when I was like re really hungry for this and I think it's good to remember both sides kind of dampens down you know 
being too hungry for it to change and makes you appreciative of like where you've gotten to with it. Yes. Okay. You're you're in Queen. You found yourself in Queenstown. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you? What are you guys doing? Um. So Don's from Tassie. I'd been down a bunch, but never lived here. Um, we had our baby boy here, and uh, there was a, a huge chapter change in a couple of ways. Obviously, we left America. We had a kid, um, but for a long time, or at least for the last year. I'd been very curious to kind of shift gears within my career, maybe make less music videos. It was less about the music videos and more about um, making something that I feel a little bit more central to, definitely a bigger move towards narrative filmmaking. Um, and music videos were was always meant to be a film school. So it's like when you don't have a curriculum in a set amount of years, you decide when to shift out of it. And that time uh, felt like it was almost overdue. So the idea to move back to Tassie um, as much as it was to uh, add a necessity was also to build an amount of space and focus on um, narrative filmmaking. So uh, not long after we first got back into Queenstown, an old friend of mine, Alicia Clements, was... Uh, had just come on as the production designer for the tailings, which shot up here. So she asked if I could come up and give her a hand in pre-production just before Ori was born. Um, and apart from wanting to help her out, uh, I wanted to get a bit of an understanding of how stuff was made here and an opportunity to travel out to the West because Don had grown up in Zen and I had plenty of stories, but I'd actually never, you know, I'd always shot down the East Coast whenever we've come out or gone down the middle. Um, so I came out for that. And as soon as I came in, kind of going down that cutting, coming in, I was like, this is incredible. Actually, it was a kind of misty day driving out in general. And the whole drive kind of past New Norfolk was fantastic. I drove wow. a truck out with all the props in it. And so it was kind of solo and up nice and high. And, um, yeah. you know, I kind of had to go slow as by virtue of driving kind of a bigger truck out here. And um, it was just a, one of those like fantastic journey. I, there was a lot going on in my head with just sort of being new in the state and contemplating all the kind of changes we had gone through. So it was great. And then we, you know, got this straight hook in of being in part of the shows and show and was in a lot of uh, homes, both empty and, and occupied homes and had um, the pleasure of meeting some locals who were being very generous and assisting. Um, and it was at the start of the production too. So everyone was kind of like um, pretty energized, both from the internal crew of the, of the show and of the town. Um, anyway, I thought it was a really fantastic place. And like we spoke of earlier, this kind of process of um, being exposed to something uh, and just kind of having a feeling that it's a place you could make something or a place that you want to understand a little bit more about, that was instant. Um, mm. And that doesn't happen with every place. I think there has to be a certain amount of character or history or something that for whatever reason makes sense to me. But there's a few places that happens. It's like straight away it's like, oh, we've got to make something out here. I'm not sure what and I'm not sure how long it will take to get to the point where um, I know what that is. But... I, I want to spend more time here. Um, and the two weeks flew by that I was here and didn't kind of feel like enough um, in terms of that. But there was, you know, every morning kind of felt different. The weather's so particular and the views were great. Um, and I ran into Dave Carswell, who was the resident at QBank at the time, uh, while he was photo uh, 
photographing a house that his grandmother had a link to. Uh, so that's how I became aware of the residency um, and got in touch with Stephen, who was in New York at the time. And um, obviously, the, I think he said something like, uh, my two favourite places in the world are Queenstown and New York. Yeah, I've and I heard like, him you know, say the same. Yeah. And I was there's, like, something, um, uh, there's something about that that almost doesn't, makes sense but also feels like it makes perfect sense oh it makes two. complete sense to me yeah i get i get it com- completely and i think um yeah you know it was easy to kind of draw a connection so uh yeah i was lucky enough to they had some space just because uh, the way the schedule was working out with covid so uh it seems like a great opportunity to spend some more time out here and work on um, you know, there's always kind of a drawer of ideas and there's this curiosity whether you can kind of um, mould one of them into a new place or a place that makes sense or something new gets born out of it. So the idea with coming up was um, to get out of Hobart for a second and actually spend a, time, a bit of time developing something. Mm. Um and because the my training in theatre has a lot of um, kind of hard skills, I don't know how to describe it, but it's always involved a lot of drawing, model making, uh, photography to a degree, lighting to a degree. That's really inherent in my process, but it's always rushed with a, a project like a um, music video where you kind of do the bare minimum just mm. to get the idea across and then you shoot the thing and you get it out. It's like a really prolific way of working um, and it's too quick. Mm. I don't think you get, I think development gets cut short. Sometimes that's good and you come out with like a really fun result that you weren't anticipating and that you probably would have overcooked. But um, I'm really interested in changing that and I thought, you know, I had such an instant, instant response to Queenstown when I visited the first time that I was like, that's a place I'd love to spend more time, more time getting to know um, the people that matter there, the people that don't matter there. Um, so many great faces, so much uh, space, so much history. Um, so at least the seed idea was to just kind of come and see what what we could kind of develop and work on Um this tends to be the general problem is it's like opening a floodgate. The problem is not coming up with an idea. The problem is like which one do you sort of focus on. Um, But I think the big difference for how I've worked in the past, and I think this is uh, in one hand highly frustrating and on the other exactly what I was looking for is that for the first time, it's felt like a place that I'd like to just build a relationship with, not rush it and come back often to try and understand it at a greater degree as well. You know, I think that that is whether, whether I, I don't think other others have um, articulated that feeling in that way before, but I, I don't think that you're alone in that feeling because it, you do see a trend with a lot of... Um, artists that come to Queenstown there's that there is a relationship that they start to build and then they go away and come back and go away and come back and it's it I don't really know how to describe it but it feels like 
it feels like a really important place in 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 terms of a physical space, but also in terms of time. There's something about that, about the the coming and going of the same group of people. I haven't fully th- fleshed that thought out, but yeah, there's something. I think almost as an initial response, the only way I can describe it is it feels like the place has the qualities that could almost perform like a muse for somebody mm. in the sense that I'm not even sure the work that I'd make here would come directly out of or showcase anything particular about the place, but it feels like an incredible place to make work. Saying that, I'm almost certain it will have some relationship to the land. I mean, definitely it's visually it's so striking. Hard. But no, then there's yeah. all these other things. I've spent an amount of time with Rory who's been like incredibly generous with, yeah. um, you know, not only big life questions but <laughs> local history too. And um, he actually grew up in a very similar area to me in Melbourne so there was a little bit of um, bedrock there to kind of stand on. But he alerted me to um, the kind of historical point of these Maltese stonemasons that came out to build um, the um, Lake Margaret uh, Dam, the housing there and um, these kind of 70. Have you been up to Lake Margaret yet? I actually haven't been up there, but it's something I'm trying to to. You'll have to go with Chris Wilson. Yeah, right. She'll be a wealth of – she goes up there – yeah, all the time. Okay. She'd, she'd be a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, that sense of man. And yeah, these they kind of like were their little tent village, that uh, little Valletta or little Gozo that they had out there, yeah. which I was just kind of mind blown because, you know, I know about the kind of 50s Maltese, like dam builders for the hydro schemes and stuff like that, but not these kind of like early 1900s kind of stonemasons um, and spending time with, you know, Raymond and, um Helena and them kind of extrapolating on that and their whole kind of story of being here it's like you know it's just a highly attractive Mm. place to want to come back and do more work um yeah and then there's small things like I want to see cave spiders and shoot (laughs) film of capes you know there's like an endless amount of stuff where it's like some of it's just collecting and not knowing where it will form but I think the time spent at the residency has had like there's definitely a more structured response to where there's two short form pieces and a longer form piece that um i'd love to make out here and work work on whether it's like you know writing it in hobart and coming out in here and making it but i think you'd just ultimately get a whole lot more done and it feel a lot closer to the source if you came out and worked on it here so i'm not sure what format that takes from here on in but um if the initial visit out here for the tailings was just a spike of curiosity, it's like definitely got its claws in from spending, you know, even just what it's been a week and a half or something. Mm. How long are you here for? Just uh, till the ninth, just for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so short. Yeah. Where can people find you in the world if they want to see your work? Um, I'm pretty pretty visible on the internet at least for music video work so um you can what use... about your um your stage design your it's theater... deeply buried i don't know oh, where you'd no, find I it i used to have a website it. with all that on but it's like you know you, when you're trying to make something work you kind of erase all the yeah. rest of the stuff i mean i've done a wealth of illustrating work that's kind of disappeared as well but 
I think at some point, and this is the thing, you know, you kind of get insecure about that and erase yeah. these sort of huge chunks of your um, of, of work or of your, of your past. And what I'm trying to get closer to, it's not just changing to longer form narrative. It's trying to incorporate a practice that um, uses all the things that I love and that is fully expressive. You know, I'll waste days painting you know just a concept art piece of one frame knowing it's a completely useless waste of time but because i enjoy that process and i learn something more about it and i end up with an artifact that it's like this was what inspired the rest of the things so i just i think my work will eventually get to a point where a lot more of it is visible and that the end result of the film is just a portion of the whole exploration so you know the theater stuff's kind of gone and the illustration stuff you can't like find so much off but i think it'll all come back in and be a little bit more um accessible well i'm going to do a very thorough search <laughs> and see what i can i'm sure find. it won't be too difficult to pull up but it's not as simple as uh, going to a website yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This is really great. Thank you. Cheers. This is Local. This project would not be possible without the incredible community of folks who make time to chat, nor would it be possible without the tremendous support of the West Coast community. If this episode offered you something good, please consider rating the show via Apple Podcasts. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is supported by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Quartz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.